Welcome to the Harbinger podcast, where we explore the stories of visionaries, entrepreneurs, and leaders shaping the future of venture capital and cross-border technology. I'm Sandy Diao. I'm a growth operator, investor, and friend of the podcast. Today, we have an exciting twist to our usual format. As our listeners know, our regular host is Adam Bao. He's a brilliant mind and an incredible storyteller. I've actually had the honor of starring in an episode a few years ago, where I shared my experience taking companies from zero to one. And today the tables have turned. I'll be your guest host and we'll be shining the spotlight on the person who usually runs the show here. Adam is an operator, entrepreneur, and investor with a fascinating journey across the globe. Adam was the former strategy and operations manager at Blipper. He was also the director of business operations at Segway Robotics while advising Schwinway Capital. And he's currently the chief operating officer at MetaTheory. So Adam, let's dive right in. I think a fitting place to start would actually be to go back in time. And you took quite an unconventional path. You set your sights on Asia and decided to drop everything and move there. Tell me a little bit about that experience. Yeah, I mean, it was certainly an adventure. And I think back very fondly, you know, back to 2017, where, well, even before 2017, I'd gone out to to China in 2016 with Blipper, the company I worked at at the time, which is a you know, pioneer in AR. And we were essentially meeting with um, some of the, the large tech companies in China. Uh, so so the, Xia- the Xiaomi's, Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent's of the world. And there was so much energy out there. Very hardworking people, super smart, very hungry to build out new products and also businesses, uh, very commercially minded and just, just super innovative overall, especially on business model. So it was very clear to me that I wanted to be out there. So for me, as an ABC, I figured that I might have a bit of an edge or at least a way to differentiate. Right? So because, you know, for many folks in the U.S., they when they learn about China, they'll, they'll read a news in Wall Street Journal or uh, at New York Times. It usually covers the large tech companies. And, uh, you know, to me, I felt that the insight was fairly limited and sometimes fairly subjective. But I think for me to go out to China, someone that has native level English uh, reading and writing, and also had a decent grasp of Chinese. It just made sense for me to go out there and observe and learn and hopefully share my insights with a global audience in English. Come 2017, I'm like, hey, <laughs> why not just drop everything when I'm still young, go out to Asia to learn, to, to build, to invest, do whatever, and we'll, we'll figure it out. I didn't really worry about income. I figured it would be a way to make it back over time. So decided to go out there and um, you know, I kind of treat it as my MBA. Um, I wasn't thinking about going to grad school. I figured undergrad was sufficient. And by going to China to develop a network out there to, to learn and meet great people just made a lot of sense. And uh, I think I'm, I'm definitely someone that, that tends to think fairly frequently about unfair advantages and just untapped opportunities and arbitrage. It doesn't really pay off to compete against others in the same way. There, there will always be someone smarter, you know, someone that works harder and more ruthless or devoid of principle. Um, and there's, there's a lot of very aggressive uh, uh, you know, wolves in China. And uh, anyways, I figured it was a need to differentiate. And I, I think that, that holds for, it holds for both personal growth as it does for businesses. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an early realization of mine and you know, without going into too much detail, but uh, when, I, when I was in high school, I did a triple jump and uh, I was fairly fast, not, not the fastest. I, uh, I jumped pretty high, but, but, but not the highest. Uh, I was willing to work hard though and, and to learn and to develop technique. And I found that the triple jump requires speed, explosiveness, and also technique and balance. And, and I learned I learned to kind of package that together to win a state championship. So and that was a lesson I never forget. And, and like 
over the course of my life, I just figured there's like always need to think about how to differentiate, whether it applies to yourself, to your career, whether it applies to companies you look at from an investment perspective, whether it comes to building out various products and business models. You cannot do things the same way as everyone else. If you do that, <laughs> you're going to be outcompeted most likely, and you're going to see all the capital and profits you wrote it away. So, anywho, kind of a long-winded way to respond to your question, um, Sandy, but made a lot of sense for me to go out there because I felt it was a way to differentiate and a way to arbitrage and just a way to kind of develop a position that was, that was uh, unique and, and hopefully can, could, could be built around over time. That's really interesting. And it's, so it's, it sounds like you honed this unfair advantage and went to Asia to build on that. So what did you decide to do from there? For me, what happened was in my, in my 20s, I realized that I wanted to go out to China full time. I wanted to move out there, explore opportunities and figure out something to do there. I mean, wasn't quite sure exactly what it looked like, but I knew in my heart of hearts that the way to learn about Chinese uh, startup ecosystem and venture capital was to work closely with one of the, the local VCs. Because the investors in China, they're going to know more about Chinese technology trends, startups, uh, you know, founders, uh, insights on business model much better than anyone else around the world. I think a lot of folks in the US and they look at Alibaba and Baidu and they'll read the kind of the, the, the typical content and it's fairly interesting, but usually lacks some of the insight you'd find locally in China. So I figure if I wanna learn about what's going on in China, why should I be reading about stuff here in the US? I remember going to Flushing on a weekends to have amazing Chinese food. We also start writing, uh, writing this newsletter called a Harbinger. It was kind of like a proto kind of proto newsletter that I wrote a long time ago. And it just didn't make any sense for me to sit in Flushing and write that. It, it made a lot more sense for me to go out to China. So, I mean, that's what I did. I, I dropped everything, decided to, um, you know, reach out to my network in China. Uh, I knew one of the VPs at Shrunway. It just so happened that they would benefit from someone that, you know, could read and write Chinese, or excuse me, English, uh, that knows the, the American market, has a decent grasp of Chinese, although not fully fluent. I could help them with a number of things. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't be paid well because... These are things that are kind of auxiliary for them. Like you don't need someone like me, right? American ABC type person in China. They probably benefit more from having local uh, investors that can really dig deep on trends and you know kind of you know, work, work with the local companies and in a very hands-on manner. I think for me, what I did was I created this. Uh, it's kind of this um, uh, unique opportunity where I can help them look at Chinese companies, sure, but also global companies and, and global trends and reference points. You know, for their Chinese portfolio companies. It also helped their portfolio companies uh, sell their products globally because you know, oftentimes when it comes to Chinese companies, they might have physical products they can you know, much more readily sell overseas uh, you know, versus having Chinese apps that whose models just may not fit a, a, a global, global market or audience. But um, you know, usually the, the Chinese companies, they didn't have teams that are great at branding or marketing. Uh, they, didn't have, they didn't have necessarily very strong BD capabilities. So those are areas where we can kind of fill in the gap and differentiate. So that's what I did. And uh, yeah, I've been very thankful for the experience. I was exposed to a ton of excellent founders and investors in China. And it sounds like the work that you did there naturally evolved into what you ended up building with the Harbinger. Tell me a little bit more about that piece, because you mentioned that your original entry point into this was thinking about creating content. You were writing a newsletter in Flushing, and then you ended up making your way to China. But what was the intent behind the newsletter and the content? Like, what was it in service of, if something different? 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of it initially was driven by personal curiosity because there's so much innovation happening in China. I love learning about it. I want to access more. And I felt like there are other folks in the US, especially executives, founders, investors, I want to find an edge, right? They want to get a sense of what's different. Because in a venture business, if you build a conventional, I don't know, product or startup, very likely it's 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 not going to succeed. It just it's just too competitive. Uh, so you know, everyone's trying to look for an edge. And it, it felt to me that it was difficult for someone in the US to learn about China. You have to be out there, like you know, know the language or know people there. It was a bit more amenable for someone like me because I had some of the language capabilities and family and some friends out there. But I, I figured that you know, for a local Chinese person to do that and kind of share that insights with the global audience, it may not make as much sense because perhaps there's limited English there or like doesn't come across the right way or, or what have you. They don't have the right channels. So you know, I, I decided to do it. I mean, that, that was initial intent behind it. Um, in terms of Harbinger, yeah, I mean, like it, things evolved in the Harbinger after a while. Uh, well, there was the initial newsletter, but that was something I was I was personally interested in. I just kind of did it on the side. When I went to China, it was very much full time supporting Shrongway Capital and their ecosystem of companies, their portfolio companies. Learn a lot there. You know, before getting a Harbinger and what I built out on a Harbinger side, I want to spend a bit more time talking about Shrongway. First of all, <laughs> incredible team, like great culture, really smart investors that were kind, and they were led by a gentleman named uh, Leitring, uh, who is also the founder and CEO of Xiaomi. And uh, I imagine some of the audience members, have, I imagine most of the audience members have heard about Xiaomi, but uh, yeah, Leitring is an incredible founder and, and operator and also an investor. He's probably one, he's certainly one of the smartest you've ever met in person. But um, I think something to note about the, the Strongway Xiaomi ecosystem is that um, uh, it, just, it just worked. So Xiaomi sells smartphones, that's its primary product, but Xiaomi also sold other smart, products and hardware products from air purifiers to vacuum robots to TVs and other home appliances. And these sold really, really well. But like what was particularly fascinating was that the Xiaomi ecosystem was one where, okay, Xiaomi would invest in some of the best companies building some of these, these hardware products, but would also support from a product and design perspective. And then ultimately Xiaomi will push it through their sales and marketing channels. So, you know, for a company that was supported by Xiaomi and, and, and secondarily Shrongwei, is basically guaranteed a hundred to five hundred million dollars valuation. Uh, it, it's kind of a joke and a saying in China. So I mean, I thought it was brilliant. And then, um, and uh, you know, Leitring, he, he primarily focused on Xiaomi, obviously, but uh, he also supported Shrongwei Capital, which is a in, independent VC fund. It is not his family office, and he's not the primary driver of all decisions, but he's he's very involved there. Uh, like the fact that he had Shrongwei in parallel, which invested in a bunch of other interesting companies that are not relegated to just hardware companies offered you know, additional perspectives for him to understand uh, new trends, what's driving uh, various developments, what kind of founders are out there. It was hugely beneficial for him. So you know, for me to see that, to have a seat at the table where I wasn't influential on in many of the investment decisions, but for ABC, for American born Chinese to be in China and learn from some of these people, it was fascinating. I loved it. I felt super thankful. And then you know, when it comes to uh, Harbinger, what, I, what, what happened before that was actually, I created a podcast with Shrongwei. It was called a Shrongwei VC podcast. It was all in English and, I, and it took a lot of inspiration from other podcasts like the, the Andreessen podcast in particular. Uh, but uh, what I decided to do was, was like, hey, instead of me talking about China, why don't I interview the best founders? So many of these are unicorn founders or they're investors. Why don't we have them share their views and insights on what's happening in China? And then that way, you know, hopefully everyone wins. I mean, I, I learned a long way. I build my network. Uh, you know, these uh, 
these uh, pioneers get to share their stories with a global audience, Americans back home can learn more about Chinese founders and, and business models and innovations. So if, if, to me, it felt like a way to, to generate utility and, and just, just create value for the broader ecosystem. That's how I did it initially. And, and it really accelerated my learning and my network development. Um, the reason why I converted into the Harbinger podcast plus other activities was because I didn't want to limit to just Shrongwei, right? Because most of the folks that came out initially were Shrongwei portfolio companies, you know, Shrongwei unicorns, and also Shrongwei uh, investors. But there's many other VCs out in China that are incredible, you know, from, from Sequoia to DCM to, to Jingwei Matrix to, um, you know, to Gaorong. Uh, there are just so many excellent funds and investors out there, and, and they, have, they, have, they have incredible portfolio companies. So I wanted to democratize that. That's why I created a Harbinger VC podcast. And uh, it, was, it was content at the core, basically interviewed founders and investors. Uh, we had content um, on, on a website and a few other you know, basic platforms as well. Uh, and we also did a number of deals. So we invested in some of the companies uh, that, were, that were part of this ecosystem. Didn't have a ton of capital. You know, this is not a separate fund or anything like that. A lot of it was, was my own angel investments and my own efforts, but uh, it's, it's been an incredible ride since then. I still do it on the side, although obviously, these days is very much 100% focused on building out meta theory. I think it's really fascinating how you were able to take the Harbinger and build out both that personal network and then also utilize it to um, build that personal portfolio of investments. And I think that that's a really interesting model of probably one of the earliest models I've seen of turning content into those types of interesting business opportunities. And I think as we're telling the story of Harbinger, a really fun anecdote that I, I want to make sure we don't miss here is the time that you started to think about growing the Harbinger brand and a really fun experience that you had of uh, being on national Chinese television through a dating show. And I, wanted, I want you to tell the audience a little bit more about oh. how you <laughs> turned that experience into basically a growth opportunity for the Harbinger brand. Um, I see. So you're referring to Fei Chen Wurao, right? The, the, the dating show. Yes, <laughs> that exactly. was, uh, yeah. I mean, that was mostly for shits and giggles. Um, yeah. I mean, so what happened was, uh, at one point, uh, I was fundraising for the Harbinger and, uh, I, 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 I was able to successfully fundraise. I'd committed capital from a number of the, actually a number of the, the folks that came onto the show. <laughs> it made sense, right? Uh, they had, a, they, they knew me fairly well. They were supportive and they want to support anything that I built. Ultimately, this didn't take the money because a content-driven platform, let's, let's call it a podcast, you don't really need much capital, right? I don't need to raise $2 million to like build out a podcast. Uh, if anything, uh, like, yeah, just anyhow, it didn't make sense to, to take the money. I didn't take the money. I kept building it. Uh, but as part of that effort, I went on this dating show called Fei Chen Wu Rao. Um, I don't know the English name for it, actually, but it's a pretty big show. It's the largest dating uh, show in China. It's been around for 10 plus years. And um, I did it for fun, but also I wore a Harbinger t-shirt. And uh, usually they have you wear, I don't know, dress shirt, suit, what have you. You got to kind of, I suppose, play a character of sorts. Um, they don't constrain what you say on the show. Like, you know, everything was fairly natural, but they do want you to look good typically. And I just pretended that I forgot my, my suit or my dress shirt. Like the ones they had for me just didn't fit. I was like, can I wear this t-shirt? It had this logo of a bird on it, which is basically the Harbinger logo. Like, oh yeah, cool. Is is like, are you like, are you marketing a product or anything? Like, uh, no, because no, it's just a bird. Like, looks pretty cool. I mean, Harbinger's not really selling product, right? So, anywho, anywho, went on the show, um, went well. Um, yeah, I ended up, ended up uh, with with uh, 
one of the female contestants, as in, you know, she decided to choose me and, and then, uh, and, and, uh, you know, she was going on this trip and, um, I, th I think the, the TV crew to follow us there, uh, you know, ultimately actually did not go on that trip because it's pretty busy at, uh, working on cyber robotics at the time. But, um, yeah, it, it was just, it's just a lot of fun. Um, I'm not one for attention, by the way, I don't love attention. Uh, it's not something I, you know, purposely did because I wanted to do it. Uh, I just, I just figured that it was, um, beneficial for Harbinger. Oh, the funny thing is actually the parents and like the moms of my, my, my Asian American friends, they saw the show and they loved it. My mom saw it. My, my, my aunt saw it. Like they, they thought it was hilarious. Cause I feel like that's a typical audience. It's not really for, I don't know, like millennials or, or, or Gen Z. It's more so for the older generation. It's like not as much to do. They're at home. They watch these dating shows. Perhaps they, you know, like they, they, they wish that their daughters and sons would find, you know, the, the significant others. So like they're the ones that are typically watching it. It was, it was hilarious. You know, Adam, I think there's two really fun things about that experience. The first one is that you actually won on that show. And for those who aren't familiar with the show, basically what happens is they have uh, male contestants go on and try to appeal to a panel of a dozen or so, I believe, female contestants. And your job is to basically impress them through a series of montages about this individuals, you know, job, livelihood, what their friends say about them, etc. And Adam really put on a show there, but he, he actually won the show. So it's, it's, it's fun in that he was successful in doing that all while wearing the Harbinger t-shirt. Um, and then the second thing is, I, I imagine that this was actually a really cool cultural immersion or experience for you. I mean, being on national television in, in China, I think that at the time that show was expected to see about anywhere between 30 to 40 million viewers per episode. So just the just the reach of that is mind boggling. And it sounded like a really fun experience there. Yeah, yeah, it, it ultimately what it was ultimately really fun. Um, I, I, I was I was pretty uh, apprehensive going in like, you know, like, just, I don't speak great Chinese going on a show and uh, you know, some sometimes get accosted by you know, the gals, the, the other contestants, because they're trying to get a better sense of you or like, you know, kind of see how you react under under pressure. I think it was ultimately 100 million plus views for that episode. But yeah, but, but it was super fu fun and uh, I'm glad I did it. I don't think I ever did something like that again, but uh, yeah, it was fun while it lasted. <laughs> and so it sounds like you weren't able to take that girl on a date because you things got busy with Segway Robotics. And actually, let's use this as a moment to transition into your experience there. So Adam, I remember when we first met, you were leading growth at Segway Robotics. And the first time we chatted, I was actually just sitting down for dinner. I got a WeChat call from you and you oh. just sort of dove right in. We had quite the conversation about logistics and freight providers and, and all of that good oh, yeah. detail around getting Segway Robotics launched and the first product launched in the US. What was the story of actually how you got involved in Segway? Mm -hmm. I definitely remember that, yeah. And I'm so glad I met you you know, like during this adventure, uh, we, we've been good friends since and learned so much from you, Sandy, along the way. Um, so, yeah, so what happened was uh, Segway Robotics is a department underneath uh, Segway 9Bot. And I imagine many folks have heard about Segway, right? Like the, U the American company with the, the, you know, those two wheelers, so it's to change the world. But um, it was acquired by a company called 9Bot. So it's a Chinese company that's so similar products. So a lot of these two wheelers, these hoverboards, uh, they call them Pinghongche in China. And um, so after, I mean, Ninebot acquired Segway because, uh, because it could, 
they want to expand its global business. So, so Ninebot acquired Segway for various reasons. Um, and uh, eventually that, that combined entity, that combined company started to diversify its product line, not just from the two wheelers uh, and the hoverboards, but also to other products, everything from go-karts to, uh, to these uh, mobile robots that you mentioned earlier, to delivery robots, et cetera. The reason why I started working with them is because I was sent over by, by Stromway. Segway Robotics, it's called Segway Ninebot, uh, is one of the portfolio companies for, for Stromway and also for Xiaomi. And uh, you know, at the time, the, the company was selling kind of two primary lines of products. One of them was this consumer robot called a Lumo. It was basically this, uh, yeah, think of it as a hoverboard with a, with a robotic head that had computer vision capabilities uh, and uh, you know, it was able to kind of move around. Um, so it was, I think it was kind of a more retro fit. Okay, we have the, the, mo the mobility technology. How do we add a robot um, and computer vision system on top of it? So that was one of the, the products that Segway Robotics, Segway, Segway 9Bot was pushing. Another line of robotics products involved the delivery robot. I mean, that, that to me made a lot more sense because when you think about China, uh, there's so many deliveries, whether it's food or packages per day. So Meituan Dianping is one of the, the large such companies in the space. It does something like 40 million food and package deliveries a day. I mean, that, that's incredible. And back in the day, I mean, it may be different now, but they used to subsidize each delivery, something like three to five RMB per order. Right, so like, I mean, what is the cost of that? If you, if you do a math, something like twenty and thirty million dollars a day, that's so much money. So there's a way to use robots to uh, essentially supplant and replace the you know delivery people to de decrease the reliance on human deliveries. It, it plays right into growth area of you know tech development, robotics, automation in China. So a company like this got got a lot of attention. Was able to raise quite a bit of money. Um, and uh, you know the other other thing I'll, I'll mention there is uh, well, it's less so on the robotic side, Sandy, which I know we worked on because uh, we we try to sell that consumer robot via Indiegogo, and we did. You know I think we were able to generate something like a million dollars on Indiegogo, which is you know fairly good on a platform. And even today, um, many of the Segway Ninebot products are sold via Indiegogo and similar similar channels where the crowdfunding channel actually became a sustainable you know, revenue source for for Segway Ninebot. Uh, but I'd, I'd say the robotics business is a really small piece of their overall offering, which is more, more so driven by not just delivery robots, but also by scooters, by e-scooters. I don't know if you recall, you know, the, the scooters, um, scooter sharing companies like Lime or, or Bird. Like, did you ever use any of those, those back in the day? I did. I think 2017, in addition to being like a golden era for IoT, was also the golden era for the emergence of a lot of these sort of last mile platforms and and products that came to market like lime i remember trying one of the um one of the bird products uh in san francisco mm -hmm. which is one of the earliest markets where they launched and just feeling super surprised and also confused on where where that was all ultimately going to go mm -hmm. yeah yeah <clears throat> yeah i mean there, there was an explosion of activity and you know, of, of investments you know during that period and uh <laughs> Like those scooter sharing companies, um, it's been a difficult business for them, right? like highly capital intensive and kind of operationally uh, uh, intensive as well. But the the winners, the, the, the winner was Segway Ninebot because think of it as like the, the kind of picks and shovels business where it's just supplying all the e-scooters that are burning alive. So it's generating so much revenue. It was generating something like $500 million a year come 2018. Uh, and uh, it kind of took Segway Ninebot from a, fairly large company. I was mostly selling hoverboards and, and, and such to selling many of these e-scooters and was able to go public in China. So, I mean, that, that was incredible to see. 
uh, like for me being out in Asia, not only was I able to see that firsthand because I got very lucky. I don't know how, how this happened. I just ended up supporting a company that just, uh, just started growing very rapidly, generate a ton of revenue. But also, you know, one of my friends from, from Yale, from college, his name's Alan. Um, he was, he'd been a general manager for Uber in Southeast Asia for a number of years. Actually, the funny thing is we called him Uber Alan because back in the day, he kept asking us to join uh, Uber <laughs> and uh, made no sense. Like, you, why would you want to join a uh, taxi hailing company? That seems so random. But anywho, he joined very early, called him Uber Alan. And at the time, he was working at a company called Ofo, which you're probably familiar with as well, Sandy. If you ever been in China, you know, uh, like use one of the, 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 the shared bikes there, not the shared scooters, but the shared bikes, uh, the, the yellow ones in, uh, in this case. But uh, so he was, he became a general manager at Ofo and the company at the time also raised hundreds of millions of dollars. Like, like oh, you know, take the Uber playbook and apply the uh, bikes and scooters now. And, and, and Ofo wasn't doing particularly well after a while. <laughs> it just burned through a lot of capital and you're experiencing somewhat similar problems to many of other other competitors in the space. But what, what Alan, um, when we caught him in Beijing, we, I remember grabbing coffee in, in uh, San Lee Tuan, and uh, he was not very happy. And I was like, hey, look, dude, uh, have you heard about Bird and Lime in the US? Like, why not do scooter sharing? If you want access to scooters, work with us. We, we provide most of the scooters. And, uh, you know, because they're in, in such high demand, we were supply limited, supply constrained. And most of the orders were earmarked for a Bird and a Lime, uh, you know, naturally. But what we did was we found a way to accelerate getting scooters over to, to Alan. Uh, he, he created a new company called Beam, essentially a very similar burden line, but for Asia Pacific, not, not, not necessarily every single market in Asia is relevant to, you know, for, for this type of business model, but he was able to kind of carve out some of the better markets for it and build a, a seemingly very healthy and robust business. I say today, um, Beam, the company that he founded is probably, it, it's one of the biggest but also one of the best managed such, such micro mobility companies. I believe that they're a bit of positive. Uh, they don't really burn through as much capital as some of the other competitors. Uh, and they also have uh, accrued many of the licenses that are necessary to operate in, in, in the markets legally. So, you know, it's still a hard business. Uh, I respect this team a lot for building out such a business despite these difficulties. The reason why I bring up this, this, this story is because, man, this is, totally not expected, right? The dots don't really connect looking forward, but uh, when you go out to a market like China and you just start doing this, doing stuff and start executing and developing relationships and helping people, finding a way to connect people, that really interesting things happen. That was, that was so fun. I'd say, um, I do want to mention though, like, you know, cause over the past couple of years since 2017, I haven't only been in China. I was also in Taiwan <laughs> and we'll get to that in a little bit, but uh, I went to Taiwan because, um, because of COVID. In early 2020, um, we all know what happened uh, globally. Although the interesting thing was that Taiwan was very safe in all of 2020, most of 2021. And when I, when I was in China, I was like, huh, okay, maybe I should take two weeks uh, in Taiwan and kind of ride out the storm, so to speak. But the two weeks became nearly two years. And, uh, you know, I essentially um, kind of carried my interest my, my existing network in, in broader Asia, mostly in China at the time, but broader Asia, uh, in my skill set and, and my my uh, my experience over to Taiwan, I kind of did something similar there. Right. And so tell us a little bit more about that period of time. So when COVID hit in 2020, you were based in China. Sounds like you thought you were going to just spend a few months in, in Taiwan and it ended up staying for two years, I believe. What mm -hmm. were you doing in Taiwan? And... 
was that a period of time when you were figuring out or thinking about how you continue to build your career in working with some of these companies as an investor? Or tell me a little bit more about what that experience was like. Yeah, yeah. Taiwan was pretty tough for a while because nothing was clear. Like no one really knows how COVID's going to develop and how long it's going to persist for. So for me going to Taiwan for the first couple of months, you know, I've been uprooted from, from China. So I'm in Taiwan now and some have some friends there locally, but not, not family or not too many people. And, uh, you know, in the first couple of months, it kind of felt like people, like it was back to high school where friends come back to Taiwan and like everything's seemingly kind of normal. Whereas the U S is seeing, you know, X number of cases every single day. And, uh, so it, it felt a little bit strange and it was, I didn't love it at the time because it just, again, it felt kind of surreal and, and it felt unclear. I wasn't quite sure what to do actually. And I got very fortunate in Taiwan. Um, I was able to meet a couple of people that had massive impact on my life and my thinking. So one of, one of these, uh, these people, his name was Hurst, Hurst Lin. He's one of the general partners at DCM Ventures and he, he founded DCM China. And previously he was the you know, co-founder and COO at Sina. So when you think of Yahoo or Twitter or China, that's Sina. It was the first Chinese company IPO in the US. And um, he really influenced my, my thinking at the time, even today. He's probably one of the sharpest, like most commercially savvy guys I know. Like some people are just very brilliant and creative. He's definitely one of them. And to give you a little bit more context on what he's done, I mean, Sina aside, you know, having built out, out from scratch, uh, he led investment deals into defining companies like Kuaishou, which uh, for those of you who don't know Kuaishou, it's essentially a short video and live video streaming platform. I think TikTok, but in China. And it IPO'd at over $100 billion market cap. Um, he also led deals in the 58.com, Wuba, basically China's Craigslist, VIP Shop, which is a discount e-tailer amongst many other you know, companies and massive wins. He's just a per perennial Midas lister. So I got so lucky to meet him and start working with him in Taiwan. I remember grabbing brunch from him in the early days. This is back in 2020. He asked me, um, what is interesting about Taiwan? Like, you know, what's different? And he took out a notebook and started taking notes as, as I was talking. It just left quite an impression on me because um, you know, he's such an accomplished guy and he, show, he shows his respect and his open-mindedness when it comes to learning from everyone. Um, it's also less intrusive than typing on a laptop, right? So like, you know, it's kind of a win-win. <laughs> um, I just recall, um, I mean, number, number of things I learned from him, I, I do want to share some of these examples and later we can kind of talk more about uh, some companies we looked at and some of the learnings there, but he was someone that just looked for situations that are different, that are, that are wacky, that are unusual. I mean, he also has a somewhat eccentric style where he wears a very colorful clothing, like red rimmed glasses and, you know, like dyed his hair and all that stuff. And it was really cool, uh, like take inspiration from that. <laughs> but he's not the typical Chinese investor, right? Like, usually aren't, aren't kind of fashioned that way. But um, he tend to look for situations that are different. It's very similar to the, the Peter Thiel school of thought uh, that was described in the book Zero to One, where, I mean, I, like for me, the most compelling concept was, uh, you know, around conflict, right? So like conflict doesn't really arrive from differences. It arises out of uh, similarities and uh, competition over scarce resources that can really erode away profits. Um, so, you know, as a result, it's, it's just really important to find irregularities, you know, find ways to achieve incomplete competition or no competition. And that's kind of where the concept of monopolies come from. We have a monopoly in a small nascent market uh, or undercover market, and there's a way to kind of build a position of strength and then, you know, try to enjoy strategic advantages, whether that's of scale or 
network economies or switching costs or, or what have you. So, so I feel like Hearst was very similar. I don't know how he came about that approach. Either, you know, he like, uh, he's read a book, he's like very close to Peter Thiel, or he just discovered for himself. I, I'm assuming it's the latter. He just had a nose for things that are different. And um, so he asked me like, you know, like, what do you look at when you're in Taiwan? What's interesting? Uh, and what is Taiwan good at? And like, we have a sense of that. So Taiwan's good at manufacturing and ODMs and OEMs and chip manufacturing and like, you know, things that are done cheaper, more efficiently, right? <laughs> but the thing is, um, the startup market there is, is quite a different one, especially coming from the US and China where the market's pretty small overall. Like there's not as much local dynamism, at least relative to a China or to a US. And a, a company in Taiwan just has to go global. There's not as much capital to work with lo locally. And many local investors and, and companies want to invest into production lines because they can see the profit, right? So like, and, and when there's not too many examples of startup success, there's not as much recycling of cash back into the ecosystem you know, versus China and the U.S. again. So, uh, you know, given all of that, what can we can, what can we look for? What's interesting? What's different? So, yeah, I mean, we, we did this exercise, just scout our market, talked to a lot of founders, did some research, talked to people, talked to other VCs, and we determined, determined a couple of things. Um, I'm not going to, you know, kind of summarize or list out everything, but it started off by looking at consumer and lifestyle products, right? So in Taiwan, Taiwan used to be colonized by the Japanese. So it has a very strong Japanese international influence. And you also look at, okay, well, so like what, what's, what's, what's natural in Taiwan? Like is it pineapples, mangoes, and quality teas? Um, there were some really good bars in, in uh, Taiwan as well, Sandy, some of the top five bars, top 50 bars in the world. So you know, can you develop new spirits for alcohol brands? Some of these can grow pretty quickly. Just look at what The Rock has done with, uh, you know, with the, the tequila brand. Um, is it, I don't know, is it loose leaf teas? Is it bubble tea? Is it, is it even, you know, soup dumplings? The entire phone was founded in Taiwan many years ago. And right, so it like, could be like, what we try to emphasize or focus on was what is Taiwan good at and how is it differentiated versus uh, any other market? Right, so, so that's kind of what we're looking at. Um, oh, another thing I'll mention is, I mean, it, we kind of looked at a company, a couple of companies there, you know, in the ocean tech and logistics space, because two of the world's largest shipping carriers uh, are are based in Taiwan, and also, you know, one of the largest fishing fleets in the world with you know, something like a thousand, you know, large vessels. So, like, what could be done there, right? So, like, there's so many things that we try to look at. We try to um, uh, kind of zig where other where, where others were zagging. Um, try to not look at too many of the the typical, you know, kind of consumer app startups in Taiwan, there's there many of them and some of them are pretty interesting. And just are, are these VC backable? Are they venture skill type returns that are relevant for a fund that's in China or the US? It would be harder to do, right? So I'll, I'll take a bit of a pause there. We can go through some more examples, but man, I learned so much from Hearst. It was such a fascinating and, and growth oriented experience just kind of just working with him. Adam, there's so much to unpack there, but I want to react to two of the types of opportunities that you were looking at in Taiwan, which I think are actually quite unique. The first one around consumer and lifestyle products. It seems that what you're pulling out here is that Taiwan is actually a great cultural exporter. So mm -hmm. some of these products that you're talking about, like soup dumplings or bubble tea, like just if you look at just the U.S. alone, like how prevalent are these? Like Din Tai Fung having a chain and and a store in every major city in the United States now, bubble tea showing up at the corner of every street and being next to a Starbucks and sort of competing. 
working head to head for, you know, some of those consumer dollars and even products like, you know, whiskey and some of these like liquor products you're mentioning, like Cavalon an internationally sort of acclaimed uh, whiskey that people all across the world enjoy the taste of. So I think that's actually really interesting there. And um, it's fascinating that even though you have this like background in technology products and that's primarily kind of like the area you were looking at like you started to take some of those lessons around for instance looking for some natural monopoly opportunities and looking at a bit of a different set of industries when you were spending time in Taiwan I think the second we actually had um, around the ocean tech and logistics now that you're saying it it actually sounds very obvious in retrospect like Taiwan being a place that's surrounded by water and probably having to solve a lot of those problems forced that market and forced the individuals working on those problems to basically create solutions that can make their lives easier. So I just wanted to share that reaction. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Um, there's certain things that, that are obvious. And then uh, as you dig a level deeper, then you realize that some things that kind of seem differentiated uh, and are cool, like may not be venture backable because <laughs> there's many things that are, that are interesting businesses and probably can generate returns and profit, but like not all of them are relevant for early stage venture. So uh, maybe I'll give you a couple of examples there. So hmm, let's talk about e-bikes, right? Like, I mean, that's something that was very prevalent during COVID especially. And um, I don't know if you've ever come across one of these uh, products by these, these uh, e-bikes uh, made by Van Move. beautiful bikes, really expensive, several thousand dollars per bike, right? So in the years leading up to and during COVID, then Move was generating some, generating something like fifty million dollars of revenue a year, and uh, many of the the users and the, and the customers were in places like Europe because, well, like they're used to the biking behavior, and also there are certain tax credits uh, where it's kind of you know it's cheaper to purchase uh, such a bike versus other transportation uh, um, um, methods. And when you look at Taiwan, uh, so Pelotons were being manufactured in Taiwan amongst many other bike brands and and, and parts. So, you know, looked at that industry and like, okay, like, is that relevant? Taiwan's really good at manufacturing bikes, but that's not really a venture business. And it takes some time, uh, it takes, it takes heavier capital. And then that, that's probably more of a, I don't know, later stage or a private equity type investment or even public company type type investment. But like, you know, when it comes to bikes, what about e-bikes? Is that more relevant? Uh, and uh, like, you know, how does that move? And could, could there be other comparable companies built? Because there's more demand for e-bikes during COVID when folks when, when folks are outdoors and want to move around and you know like people like would rather I don't know or they could only bike versus going to a club, right? So, but the thing is, um, we looked at that space and it was pretty interesting, but ultimately didn't make any investment. Uh, there were, there are were several companies trying to do it. Some of them were spinouts from larger manufacturers. Some of them were even not sure biking scooter companies that were expanding along the valley chain, but it just it didn't make the most sense because. I think for venture, you're looking for, I mean, the, the, like the, the, the cost basis also matters, right? But like for venture, you're looking for things that have extreme scale that can potentially grow very, very quickly as upfront costs. But then like, you know, once you get to a certain uh, a level of, of the business, then uh, the, the, the marginal costs get, get very slim and you can generate outsized returns. And also you have to think about uh, you know, what, what it takes it to generate a return, I mean, potential return a fund X number of times during what, you know, during, during X, X, X uh, time period. So for e-bikes, it was pretty cool, but like there was a potential concern around the size of that market. Is it like a COVID-driven pump? Um, and, and also like valuations are pretty high during this period. Like it was kind of an interesting business and interesting model, but it may not necessarily generate the best returns from a venture perspective. 
And also to, to create a new brand, like just like, to, I don't know, manufacture a bike and slap a brand on top of it. Is that sufficient? It's, it's a lot harder than it might seem. And it takes time. You got to market it globally and you got to ship and all the other stuff. There's a ton of detail there. So then you think about, okay, well, if it's not really like creating a new brand from scratch and like building the bikes, then is it more about the software embedded into the e-bikes or some of the system? And there's there's many systems involved in e-bike, but things like the the hardware and firmware being, being one one piece of it to the controller and to the battery, to the display and, and sensors. Some folks manufacture their own. Uh, some folks will you know, kind of source from, from, from a few partners and package it together for brand clients. So it gets like the point being that something that seems kind of cool and differentiated and like over time obvious because you get excited about it doesn't necessarily mean it's a great venturing investment. And I think what I learned from Hearst was that he was very, very discerning and, and not prone to rush. Like if something doesn't make sense, he, he doesn't get it. He's not going to pull the trigger. He's, he needs to truly understand it, uh, have, have conviction. And also the ideally the investment or, or the company needs to be needs to be fairly cheap, right? And I think that was very prescient because like all the companies that raise, excuse my language, shit ton of money during COVID at high valuations, but now they're they're hurting bad because what are you gonna do? Like, can they raise it a down round? Is there gonna be, yeah, I mean, yeah, can they raise it a down round? Do you wanna do they wanna do that? How does that impact existing equity holders? Uh, because they have such a high valuation to support, does that constrain them on certain directions or actions they could they could have taken otherwise? Like it just like too much capital, high valuation is not necessarily a good thing. Oftentimes it can be very harmful to the business. So I think, you know, for Hearst, he's very conscious of interesting products, uh, great founders, differentiation, some sort of dis dislocation, but also companies that are not overly expensive. Like he doesn't like flashy stuff. It's gotta be something that, that makes sense to him. Aside from e-bikes, what were some of the other unique categories that you looked at? Yeah, yeah. We looked at some really funky ones, by the way. Like it just it just had to be different. Like that, that was the it's not the only way to invest, but it was something of interest to uh you know to I, I suppose to to me and also the to Hearst in Taiwan. So you know, one of the areas that's a bit less conventional is in recycling and ESG in Taiwan. Um, I mean Taiwan is sometimes called the the recycling kingdom. Um and uh you know, well, like, what could be found there in Taiwan uh that it kind of fits that uh fits that mode. So there was a company called MiniWiz that I found very interesting. And the founder, Arthur, is exceptional. I mean, he's a structural engineer and architect by training. He was tops in this field, Harvard educated, bilingual. It seems just the type of guy to build a global business. And, you know, these are some, you know, personal reflections. And, and by the way, like a lot of this is kind of my, my own views and doesn't really reflect that of DCM or Hearst even per se. Uh, but uh, you know, for me, when I, when I like looked into MiniWiz, you know, understand a bit more about the business and the fact that his team spent 15 years, 15 years developing technology and uh, you know, certain processes to transform the, the waste materials, whether it's plastic, you know, metal or glass into more sustainable building materials or, or even furniture and, and products. And they actually have a database that's freely available where there's like 200 plus types of new recycling, uh, recycled materials that they, they created. Um, so that's part of their business, but they also had this, I think it was called like a, like a specialty ESG construction project business where they basically used their, their know-how and also recycled materials uh, to, uh, you know, kind of create structures and buildings and renovations for, uh, for clients. So the company was pretty cool. They had some reputable investors I mean, including Jackie Chan. I think Jackie Chan, Chan likes Arthur a lot. And they've been chugging along for a while. The company's around, likes generating revenue and, and cash flow. 
it covers a cost, but like there's not a ton of room for, for expansion. So I don't think there was a, at least for me, right? It's just my own view. I didn't see a ton of potential for explosive growth relevant at that, at that stage. But I do think the company is really interesting. Um, maybe it's a dumb idea. Like perhaps some people just don't really care about like upcycled trash materials. So we don't really care about buying furniture or products that are made of essentially trash. Uh, but, you know, I mean, if it's driven by this, this ESG trend, uh, this, there could be something interesting here. So my hypothesis at the time was that MiniWiz should sell its upcycled products to consumers and businesses instead of doing these one-off um, construction or architectural projects. Um, and, uh, you know, what I did was I, I, I kind of did analysis and surveyed a bunch of friends, US, China, et cetera. And it became really clear at number one, there's actually, yeah, there's fairly weak demand for buying these uh, recycled products because the, there's a Chinese expression. It's, it's, it's basically like tone down, we'll go tone, right? Like the pain point is not painful enough. And um, like my friends like the mini whiz design and maybe they'll buy the product, but only if it's reasonably priced. They don't want to pay up for recycled products, especially if it doesn't look that good. The sustainability piece is, is secondary to things like design and quality and price. Um, and I think Allbirds is a pretty good example here because, you know, they'll highlight the, the, those sneakers that are, are in vogue amongst the, uh, the Silicon Valley crowd it's at least a couple of years ago. They highlight sustainability, but it's not really the primary selling point. So my thought was that, okay, I mean, MiniWiz got, has so many interesting assets and levers and, and differentiators. Maybe they should sell to businesses because companies and businesses care more about ESG because it generates positive PR, you know, better for stakeholder approval, like in some cases, curry favor for the government. And uh, like, I don't know, it might even result in carbon tax benefits. So I figured that if they, they should lean into the furniture, sound to, to be channels like hotels, maybe like offices, developers. And uh, if this is executed well, they have a chance of uh, you know, creating a solid business, uh, bridging them over to potentially mass, mass production or lower costs. And like at that point, when their business is already fairly sustainable and well-positioned, they can consider selling to C as well, to customers. Um, anywho, just my own musings. I haven't really looked at them in a while and I, and I wish them well. Uh, but like I, had, I had never seen a company that was in this space of recycled trash and recycled products uh, and uh, trying to both create value for society, but also you know, uh, generate, generate revenue and profit. Right. And just the reaction to that, it sounds like they had this core mission of utilizing recycled materials to solve a problem. And that line you shared around the pain is not painful enough really resonates with me. Like I think about when I'm in the mind of a consumer or when I'm actually buying products, like Allbirds, for instance, I don't think that the problem I'm trying to solve there is I want to buy a pair of athletic shoes. Right. And mm -hmm the sustainability angle on it is more like a feature that maybe makes me more likely to buy it rather than like the problem that I'm actually solving in the first place. I think there are probably yeah. a segment of consumers that are different than me, but I, I hear what you're saying on the consumer market there. And I really liked that idea you had of, well, maybe you focus on businesses then whose like mission imperative, like business imperative is to uh, sort of get that, mm -hmm. solve for that sustainability aspect of things. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. I mean, that that point, the the tone yang bugo tong, um, that's super relevant, not just for this business, but for many other products and, and businesses businesses out there. There's always something that drives the value utility of a product or a service. 
usually it's not, you know, three or four things, usually just one primary thing, right? And I mean, I guess it's a case for like consumer products for, for enterprise, you can have great salespeople and actually like kind of <laughs> excite them with like five different features. Um, but yeah, I mean, like we're going to be talking about consumer stuff that we saw in Taiwan. I mean, there was this one other example that I thought was really interesting. Yeah, because you're kind of into K-pop, right, Sandy? I, I don't mean to embarrass you here, but you're into K-pop, dance, entertainment. Oh, yeah. This is the secret hobby, though. So oh. we'll keep it between us and the, the podcast listeners. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Uh, all right. Well, yeah, we'll find a way to tease that out of you sooner or later. Um, but um, so when I was in Taiwan, okay, like this is super cool. Like during one period, I was just walking around, just observing stuff. And I noticed that uh, there's a lot of young people just dancing. So whenever you go to Sanyasa Memorial or, or like, you know, the uh, CK Memorial Center and some of these public spaces, there's, there's many, uh, they're just, just young people dancing uh, at all hours. And Adam, I've totally seen that when I walked around Taiwan, it was like 11 p.m. once around a university. I think it was Taida. And I literally yeah. walked into a dance battle like on a Tuesday night. So I I've also observed this and I would actually love to learn a little bit more about your observations there. Yeah, yeah. Definitely want to see videos of Sandy dancing. So we'll ask for that later. Um, so, OK, so I observed that and I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. And I remember I was, I was having a conversation with my, my friend, Jim from, from college from Yale, uh, super smart guy, by the way, and he, he's been an ed tech product manager for 10 plus years. He ran product for, for all school. And it, it was, um, they changed their name to altitude learning eventually. Uh, but we've been talking about education, about ed tech, about dance. And, um, after I noticed that, uh, dance is so popular amongst Taiwanese youth, now I just started thinking about opportunities like this means something is it something that's investable like, is it is it big enough is it, is it too small so my initial thought was that okay cool online dance education could be really relevant for uh you know folks in college or older demographics because that makes sense i don't know help them to become influencers and uh they may be incentivized to get good because that way they can show up and, and make money maybe i mean it's still pretty steep at the very top but um you know by learning a dance uh yeah, I, I, anyway, I just figured it would, be, it, it would be relevant for that type of audience. But I think I was brainstorming for the wrong demographic because the more I noticed the young people dancing, I started thinking about, oh, yeah, K to 12, is this a relevant education play? Because at least in the US and Taiwan, you know, maybe in Korea and some other places too, although in Korea, if you're really good, you might be sent to, I don't know, like, uh, was it like YG, is it, you know, JYP, like one of those schools. <laughs> but um. I feel like, yeah, so like in the U.S. and Taiwan, people love to dance. It's dope. It's culture. It's literally culture. And, and what do students care about the most um, during those years, during those formative years? It's usually about being cool, about being what popular. And guess what? Uh, athletes are pretty cool and popular. Dancers are pretty cool and popular. I was never that popular back in the day. That's a separate story. Um, but, but like dance abilities, like being able to dance could even potentially benefit the college application, right? So like on one hand, like you might feel better and feel cool by knowing how to dance, but what if you're able to, uh, you know, differentiate via dance you know, and uh, kind of apply to better colleges? So I think, you know, during COVID in particular, a lot of people were used to learning online and they spent so much time in virtual worlds. Uh, like in the US, I think um, it was like eight to 13 year olds spend more time on Roblox than uh, YouTube or TikTok. Uh, and um, what if we create a dance app for students that incorporates many of these features. So dance videos to learn, to self-learn, or some, you know, it could be live video classes where you can choose to be anonymous or you can also show off your, your moves by some sort of spotlight feature. 
there could be some gamified features and, and leaderboards there as well. And I feel like there's a possibility of having a natural community that, that builds around this. So that was pretty cool. And if this works and there's an entry point to young people, there's always a way to layer, layer in other services too, whether it's um, other, I don't know, could be sport, could be other extracurricular activities, could even be financial literacy and applications. So it's back to the earlier point of tong dian, like the pain point. And dance is kind of niche overall, I suppose, compared to uh, basketball or, or, or football. But um, a lot of these kids love to dance. Like they fei chang, real ai. Like they really love passionately to dance. So it could be the case that, you know, one could build a, a dance community and, and kind of once you have that, build something around that as well. I mean, if you look at chess.com these days, right? <laughs> like I don't, I don't know who expected them to generate $100 million ARR a year. So, um, yeah, I thought it was pretty interesting realization. Taiwan didn't really find any teams backable uh, for this in Taiwan, but I think uh, if someone hasn't done it already, could could be out there. Yeah, and actually, even some of the culture of young people like wanting to learn to dance to be to be cool and immerse themselves in a in a social setting online. I think it applies even beyond Taiwan, right? Like looking at U.S., probably one of the trends that continue to take over TikTok um, on a regular basis are dance trends. And these are yep. not just people who want to actually like learn how to dance well, but people who just want to take some of these dance templates and have fun with it, build an audience, show other people, get some likes, get some engagement, et cetera. So that actually makes a lot of sense. So mm -hmm. touched on two really interesting consumer themes, but I actually want to go back to what people might assume to be a strategic advantage in being based in Taiwan, which is looking at, you know, manufacturing and, and semiconductors and just, just around the lines of thinking about like manufacturing, were there any opportunities that you looked at as an investor? There were, uh, we looked at a couple of such companies that you, that's pretty tough for venture, I'd say. I saw plenty of companies that were generating hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue uh, and uh, they were somewhat profitable. And then, oh, by, by the way, like many of these companies are run by um, either, yeah, the, the, the prior generation would be handing on these businesses to their you know, sons and daughters. So um, it, usually they're kind of family run businesses. And I think the play there is probably less venture, more private equity, where if you find a bunch of these, I don't know, just call them second gen founders or, or executives, they may or may not want to actually run those companies, right? <laughs> they're, I don't know, many of them are like doing pretty, pretty well. They're, 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 they're wealthy. They're, they're living their best life in Taiwan. They may not want to work as hard or run the companies that their parents built. So it could be a play to kind of roll up some of these companies uh, uh, fairly cheaply and then uh, kind of bring on a management team that can better execute and better operate. So those are some of the things I came across, but you don't really find too many venture backable type concepts. Um, uh, I did, however, I, like, I think when we're trying to find things that are, that were, um, unconventional and different, I did look to other examples and models from broader Southeast Asia, one of them being NFT driven and, uh, you know, love to get to that side as well, because in meta theory, we build games at the core, but we also dabble with web three technology with, with AI, et cetera. And if I, if I were to mention any such deal that like Hearst did not understand, at least initially, it was in the NFT space. It was hilarious because, I mean, that was a tough one. So, you know, there was a company called NBA Top Shot. It's still around and persists. There's Axie Infinity that probably many of us have heard about. 
I just couldn't get Hertz to look seriously at these companies at the time. You know, he got it after persistent pushing, you know, over time. And he realized that it all comes down to ownership, right? It's the feeling of ownership, the feeling of minus. That's something that uh, Lee Jin from Variant Fund, you know, speaks to extremely well. Um, but uh, I think, you know, Chris is very frank. He's very straight. He has a decent sense of business or extremely uh, good sense of business. And he goes, well, with NFTs, it, it's basically uh, uh, comes down to ownership. That's the feeling you get. But there's too much supply. There's all these art-based NFTs that don't really matter because it's so easy to make them, right? So like there's going to be more supply than demand. What's going to happen after a bit of a pump? Well, it's probably going to fall off a cliff because there's too much supply. That's the case for most of these projects. And he was super on point there, like for immediately. Um, and I remember sharing with him uh, Sky Mavis, uh, the, the developer behind Axe Infinity, because um, you know they're raising a Series A and I won't share the details there, but it was at a valuation. It didn't really make sense to me at the time because I'm like, wait, how many users do you have? And like, why does this make sense? Uh, I mean, they raised much larger rounds later on and they were generating real revenue. Um, for a period, it, it, was, it was growing uh, exceptionally well and it slowed down quite a bit, but they're still doing some really, really interesting things and, uh, and they've, been, they've been a pioneer in the space. But the funny thing was I just couldn't get Hearst to bite. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, learning about NFTs and, and Web3 games definitely uh, gave me a, a new perspective on some innovation in the gaming space. And um, you know, when I mentioned to you earlier, uh, quite a while back now, we've been talking for <laughs> for over an hour. But um, when I went to Taiwan, I got very lucky because I met Hearst there, but also met Kevin Lin. And Kevin Lin is um, he 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 co-founded Twitch along with Emma Shear, um, Justin Khan, etc. And he left Twitch in uh, fall of 2021, and he came out to Taiwan. So we met up in Taiwan. He's a fellow Yale alum, and we just got along really well. Very very lucky. Initially, I was thinking about potentially backing Kevin uh, Kev on his next. Uh, startup adventure right because i'm like okay well so hearst there's this incredible founder he's awesome i like him a lot very creative dude like why don't we back him so like that made sense uh but uh you know as like hung out with kev more share more ideas threw ideas around like uh connect him with a couple of founders he made a couple of investments through that as well um it kind of dawned on us but it just made sense to, to work together to build stuff together uh and that's you know, that's one thing led to another. And eventually we started building meta theory, which uh, I'm happy to talk to you at a, at a high level today as well. Yeah, Adam, let's take a moment to pin this against uh, your timeline here. So you went to Taiwan in 2020. And I think during that time as kind of framing for all this and what you're diving into around NFTs is that individuals started to turn to their personal devices more and more, right? For digital entertainment. And you know, one of the industry pockets that absolutely skyrocketed during this time was this consumer on-ramp into blockchain-powered experiences, illustrated by things like the rise of that game you mentioned, um, Axie mm -hmm. Infinity by Sky Mavis. And I remember sometime in 2020, maybe it was towards the tail end of it, there was this hockey stick chart that showed the growth of the revenue that this company was generating driven by this play-to-earn model for Axie Infinity. And mm -hmm. it sounds like you saw that opportunity quite early on. You met Kevin Lin. Sounds like he was also, and that team, that early team was starting to look at that. Tell me a little bit more about how you interpreted that moment and what it was like in the early days of brainstorming in this relatively uncharted territory. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, I remember how I mentioned Uber Allen uh, back in the day, but there was also NFT Jeff, <laughs> Axie Infinity Jeff. <laughs> Um, sometimes things play out that way, but I, I'd heard about Axie for a couple of years, even before 
uh, the boom in, in a market. Like Jeff was one of my college friends, same fraternity, just like Alan. And uh, he'd gone out to Vietnam to build his company called Sky, Sky Mavis and you know, talk at events, wearing these shorts uh, and like these shirts that had this like really cute uh, kind of chibi like creature on it. <laughs> so I'd, I'd known about NFTs for a while and I'd also been aware of crypto for a while. Like, like you know, many of these, Web3 is a very broad term, blockchain is a very broad term. There's a ton of different types of levers and, and projects in there. Uh, many of the things I didn't really understand. And, uh, you know, for a long time, I was very hesitant to kind of prod that, 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 that design space. But um, when it comes to NFTs, it just made sense to me ultimately, because I think the simple way to think about it, and you probably heard this example before is people like collectibles, right? People like to own things and people own baseball cards. Some of these baseball cards are worth a lot. What is the cost of a baseball card? You know, versus what people actually trade it for. So I think for NFTs, it's very similar. Think of it as a digital collectible. Uh, and over time, if you have that primitive of NFTs and gives you a sense of ownership over a digital thing, a digital asset, there's a lot more that can be built around that. So that I deeply believe in and I feel it too. Ultimately, on a consumer side, it's got to come down to a feeling. And I think uh, when it comes to NFTs, for like the right NFTs, whether it's, uh, I guess, Axie, Board Apes, Dustbreakers, and, and, and a few others, when you own that NFT, you feel the ownership over that particular thing, but also you feel uh, that identity, that access to a community uh, of folks that that care about, you know, either games or products or other experiences that are built that are somehow tied back to the NFT. So, um, I mean, that to me was just very apparent, and it's the world's changed a lot since several years ago, and even even during the you know crypto bull run. Uh, and, and, and like many folks in the market have turned antagonistic towards crypto overall, including NFTs and like, oh, how does it create value? Like, why does it make sense? And I totally get it, but it hasn't really changed my view here at all. I think at the core, you got to build great products and experiences that people want to come back to. But NFT very much is a, is a critical technology lever that can be utilized. So, I mean, that was clear to me very, very early, as crystal clear as it was several years ago. I'd say, let me see, two and a half years ago versus it is today. Um, and I mean, in terms of meta theory, like, uh, probably can talk through this during another podcast I mean, we should interview Kev, right? I think it'd be pretty interesting, but, um, in the early days, uh, it wasn't necessarily an NFT game that we we're trying to build. I think initial thinking from, you know, from a Kev, a Dave, like years, JT and Nelson, myself, uh, certainly I guess for them, it was more of how do we build games and anime and cool content and entertainment experiences. You know, some folks didn't really like NFTs or didn't really understand it uh, at first, which is perfectly fine. You just got to keep the tires there. And eventually with some more learning along the way, we're like, oh, this is a way to really innovate and differentiate game experiences with NFTs. I'm not going to talk you through the standard logic because many folks have heard about that on other podcasts, but it made sense to experiment with it. With it. And what we did was, okay, we'll, we'll create a company, an entertainment company that's enabled by technology. Well, Web3 NFTs, or one of the levers, as is generative AI and others. But the core of it, we're building games, we're building IP. So, you know, Dustbreaker, as I mentioned earlier, is, is one of the first IPs where you have the story world, you have these characters, art, you have the lore, uh, you have the games that that incorporate or, or you know, build on this lore, this lore and IP. You have certain web comics and visual novel experiences. And um, you know, that that's what really matters. We really want to develop something that people love. That's how you like if we can achieve this type of magic where people really, really love what they're playing with or what they're reading, what they're engaging with, get them to feel a way similar to when you or I, or you or I, uh, 
you know, watch a Miyazaki movie or, or an, uh, anime, <laughs> if we can get there, then I mean, that's really creating magic. And then once you get there, you can find ways to enhance that further via ownership and some other mechanisms. So anywho, I mean, that's pretty much, that's meta theory at a very high level in a nutshell, uh, but you're very happy to talk through some more details, perhaps at another, during another podcast as well. I think that would be great. And I want to build on what you're describing there, that magic experience of the, you know, ownership and sort of that social connection. Like, I think the reason that story is so powerful with me is remember growing up, I spent years of my life building up my presence on neopets.com. Right. And for me, that was this feeling of like, even collecting digital things, items, you know, sort of potions, colors, skins, different things that would enhance my experience in that universe. And it was contained within that universe. And although I didn't know these individuals who are playing that game with me offline, like there was so much value for me to be, have a sense of belonging online relative to the the pet that I had uh, worked with and owned and the other owners of pets as well there. And having this mini ecosystem, if you will, where we could, we could trade, we could exchange, we could you know, help each other grow in different ways through playing games and other experiences. That was magic, right? And that magic transformed yeah. into real world for me. And so I don't totally. think that what you're describing is exactly that, but I can certainly see the vision for, you know, NFTs, but just also more broadly, some of these web three based games and other yeah. types of experiences to mimic that in reality. Yep. Yeah, to- totally, totally. I mean, the past couple of years were, uh, very tumultuous, and uh, you know, with, with some of that change and disruption, uh, it does enable some other things to kind of sprout and grow. And uh, there's certain things that are still premature, but uh, I totally get what you're describing earlier. I certainly feel and sharing that sharing that feeling, uh, and it's really exciting to build in this space. Although, um, yeah, I mean, building startups is it is it is tough, <laughs> and I feel like uh, there's been when the markets are really hot. This is both for let's just call them conventional products and teams versus let's say web three products and teams. It feels like things can come fast and like everything's easy and all, but the reality is that it's very difficult to build out proper experience that people love and can be sustained over time. And I've certainly kind of felt that over the past year and 10 months through ups and downs. And we believe in what we're doing. We're, we're steadily building towards that. We got quite a bit of runway, but boy, it is, it is hard, Sandy. I never thought we'd be building something from scratch again. Uh, you know, like, uh, uh, because the past couple of years were mostly supporting founders and investing in companies, but man, what did I get myself into? And it's, it's, it's hard, but it is exhilarating. <laughs> yeah. I bet part of the thing contributing to that feeling of exhilaration and, and probably the challenge equally is that the space that you're in arguably has changed an incredible amount in the last few years here. And so I'm actually curious to learn what are some of the lessons that you've learned about building just in the past years working on meta theory yep um a lot a lot um let's see i mean many of these uh lessons are things that sound kind of cliched and are already already well known uh, it just kind of feels different when you're you're the one executing and helping to run it right <laughs> so we have a we have a team of 50 plus people at a certain valuation and a certain level of cash burn every single week and or, or every day really and um, if something doesn't get done in a month, then that's X amount of burn over the course of that month. And it feels very expensive, right? So it's a, it's a heavy responsibility and kind of 
gives new meaning to that term that Ben Horowitz came up with, which is you know eating glass. So I think for me, I'll, I'll probably tease out a couple of learnings when it comes to people and how to treat people because that's at the core of building startups. And I mean, there's plenty of other things I learned along the way as well, including like how to how to yeah, like how to mint NFTs, right? <laughs> at the very minimum. But um, so firstly, on the people side, you just got to hire the best people, especially for early stage, because right? time is limited and attention is limited. So the, the way to attain leverage is by hiring great people. Um, you know, people with, in my, in my learning, with, with a certain level of experience, like you probably don't want to only hire a recent college grads because it takes a lot of training and, and kind of hands-on management. But Hiring people with a level of experience that are that positive attitude, very important. Uh, they can learn quickly and communicate well. That can help you take ownership and eventually build teams around them. I, I think that's the, the most effective way to do it, ultimately. I'd rather have one person at, I don't know, 150 to 200K you know, salary, and it's fairly high, uh, versus a team of five at, I don't know, 50K salary each, right? Because that one person, you can assume that he or she can take care of the thing and there might not be as many mistakes and it will be done the right way and like help move the company forward versus, you know, five people that you need to manage and spend time with. And then perhaps they haven't gotten it right. Like maybe they are, maybe they don't, but just, it gets very tiring. Like you have to manage your energy when you're in a startup. And uh, like my, my learning along the way is that I would rather hire folks that are amazing versus several others who might have lower salaries, but are, uh, are less amazing. <laughs> Um, it's because it really comes down to these moments of, of leverage, these these critical moments, these these decisions uh, that really help the company make progress and push in the right direction. Um, I made a lot of mistakes. I mean, hopefully not too many mistakes. I have definitely made some mistakes when it comes to hiring that we need to correct for. And uh, you know, in my role as CEO, like deals with a lot of this, not just my team but also other team members. Um, but we also made some really incredible hires. And you know, shout out to Eric, for example, on the on the people team. And shout out to Tom Hammer from Dreesen for the initial intro, but uh, you know that that team is absolutely crushing it. I'll just leave it at that. Um, Adam, I I mm-hmm. wanted to ask, how have you made sense of the remote environment, and do you hire remotely? Like, how does that change the talent pool that you're working with? We definitely hire remotely. So, you know, for our team, we have people. All around the U.S., they're mostly in the U.S. and in Taiwan. Excuse me, we have people all around the world. They're mostly in the U.S. and in Taiwan. Uh, and you know, for certain roles, it's beneficial to be there in person. So, our designers or game developers, there's many of them. You know, in Taiwan, there's a couple of them in the U.S. as well. Like, like it's better to work together, especially in the early going. There's some other roles like accounting, for example, or even people team that can be more distributed and, and remote. So, I, I think it varies a lot by 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 role and position. Um, I think generally when it comes to remote, yeah, there's pros and cons there. I think a lot of this is well studied already. But, um, you know, there's benefits like more flexibility, um, access to global talent, which is oftentimes cheaper. And we, we definitely experienced that with our team members in Taiwan or some other markets versus Bay Area, clearly. Um, sometimes it can be an impairment on efficacy, especially at the early stage of a, of a startup, because it can lead to miscommunication and drama. I, mean, I think the thing that I've learned here Hopefully this is somewhat insightful and like not just uh, you know standard, but I've noticed that um, oftentimes when, when you want to pull your hair out, it's not because of I don't know like work amount of work or strategic decisions. It's more so when people are, are upset at each other and causing drama or, or, or gossiping, whatever it may be, which can amplify really negatively. 
And then people start losing motivation, like positive intent to work. So I really look for people that have a positive attitude and have great cultural fit and strong communication ability. I agree with that. And I think, especially when we're communicating in remote settings, it's oftentimes easier to not continue the conversation or leave the tension to sit. And I don't know if that's always a good or a bad thing, but it certainly means that we all have to make more of an effort to communicate. So I like the insight of, well, these are actually other skills that we need to look for when we're hiring in a remote first environment. And so in addition to the people lesson, is there any other lesson that you've taken away in your time building? Um, I certainly have on remote, for example, right? Like it's impacted me as well. I mean, it's been great overall, uh, open up a new world, uh, both in terms of being able to hire, but also it's, it's, it can be comfortable, right? Just being able to spend more time with family. My parents are getting older. So I split my time between Taiwan, Boston, and New York and get to see my family more often there. So it's been incredible. And also, I mean, many folks don't really notice about me. And I mean, you, you have, we're, we're, we're quite close friends. Sandy and I've shared this with you before, but you know, people tend to think that I'm social and, and extroverted and I'll go to meetings and grab drinks and go to events and conferences and what have you. But uh, I don't actually love it, or at least for me, it's um, energy intensive. So <clears throat> for, for example, I, I, I do lean slightly to the introverted side, but it's actually literally painful for me sometimes because since college, I've had a degenerative disc disease. And it's basically when, you know, spongy material in between the vertebrae uh, in a certain area, they've been, they've been flattened, which can cause some local pain and tightness. It's not actually a disease, by the way. It's just uh, a condition in which a uh, damaged disease causes pain. And uh, it's something that many folks don't really know or see. And, uh, you know, couple of this with the fact that I have tics, uh, it's basically think, uh, you know, eye blinks, certain movements, facial tics. It's a mild form of Tourette's and, and you know, something that Billie Eilish has and a few others have, but I've learned to control it since a child, but it does come at a cost, right? It causes a lot of tension and tightness, causes even more tightness in my neck and upper, upper rack. And sometimes when it's really painful, there can be, it can be just really tight and you know, like cause muscle spasm. So, you know, as a result, I don't always love being in front of a ton of people all the time, giving talks, things like that. It takes energy. You know, for now, it's not one of my superpowers. It's not how I influence people. I've done it in the past where, you know, like the, you talk about the dating show, right? It's like, okay, I'll do it to promote Harbinger back in the day, go on a panel, whatever it is. The dating show is actually kind of funny in retrospect, but I don't love doing that. Like, like it's not the thing I would, I would practically do consistently. I felt like, I needed to do it for Harbinger. Um, so instead, what I do is I find ways to communicate, right? You know, calls, one-on-ones, smaller groups, online sessions, whatever it is. So like for me, it's less so about being loud and flashing your face, more about the quality of that connection and that communication. So that's how I found a, found a work around the pain and some of the barriers. It's actually the first time I've I publicly shared what I deal with as well. And uh I've gotten a lot better at managing overall. Still need to manage it. It's something I actively work on. I'd love to get to a point, get to a point where I'll just, uh, I don't know, like tick more, stretch and massage my, my neck more in meetings or whatever. I know that logically people don't really care, right? If anything, they're probably even more supportive and I don't know, showcase respect. They have to deal with the pain or whatever, but uh, it's kind of natural human aversion and discomfort, right? So I just, I know that I should probably just, just do that more and relax the area of my, of my, of my neck and my upper back, but it's hard to do. And I also should probably go to PT more, but, uh, you know, get busy, which seems to be all the time. And it's kind of lasting on my mind. 
Um, but when you ask me about like learnings and lessons on this, I suppose one of the lessons there is that it's something that Hearst taught me as well. You know, he basically told me that, hey, look, there's this concept called Weiji, which means crisis in Chinese. And, but like in Weiji, the Ji actually means um, uh, opportunity, means Ji Hui. So I think for me, in this case of dealing with pain and, and managing the takes and all that stuff, um, uh, it, it comes with more strength and resiliency, uh, just dealing with pain. When you deal with pain consistently, Sandy, most other issues seem minor in comparison. And I think it also allows me to be more empathetic. So just being more open-minded towards people that are different and recognize that, you know, like there's a certain heart and fire and drive that people have that allows them to succeed. Uh, I tend to be more vulnerable. I mean, I'm learning to be more vulnerable and vulnerable. And I found that it helps quite a bit because it allows my team members, like folks that report to me or other team members to better connect with me because you're already naked. You're not perfect. You're trying your best. And it's just a lot easier to communicate and work together that way. Um, and at the end of the day, that, that matters. The kindness matters. You know, it impacts team, uh, the way they work, their attitude at work and the culture that manifests. And, you know, if I dare say we have one of the strongest teams in Metatheory. There are awesome people. They work hard. They care. We have a good time. And, you know, there's 99 problems that I, I tend to worry about. But, you know, the team, at least that team is not one of them. <laughs> so, yeah, I've been, been learning a lot about that over the over the past, uh, I don't know, decade. Well, Adam, thank you so much for sharing such a vulnerable and personal learning from your experience struggling and dealing with that pain. And I will also share with yep. you, I think some of those sort of personal growth moments that you've gained from dealing with that and struggling with that have really manifested in positive ways, even, even for me and having known you over the last few years. For instance, every time I talk to you, I always feel like I have super high density, super high quality conversations. And then the other fun thing I'll share here is that I remember seeing a photo of you walking around town with a travel pillow around your neck. And oh, yeah. Yeah, when I looked at that, I thought, well, firstly, this is definitely going to go vogue and everyone's going to want a travel pillow. But secondly, I thought, hey, that's actually a really interesting way to be able to make sure that you're comfortable when you're either sitting down at your desk or walking from place to place because yep. I think everyone deals with some sort of neck pain or struggles with that in a remote environment where we're just craning our necks over our our keyboards and our computers all day and I actually learned from you on that without even necessarily the context of how much you were dealing with um, pain wise in relation to you know that neck pain and and some of these other things that you mentioned so thanks for that Personally, I'm just such a huge fan of just your pursuit for impact and, and passion for both your personal and professional life. I'm curious, do you actually have a personal mission or a motto that embodies this journey that you've taken? Oh, uh, I'm trying to like rack my brain for quotes from Lord of the Rings, something along those lines. Um, yeah, I don't have a, a great quote here, but uh, I, do, I do strongly believe that at the end of the day, it's about what you put in. I mean, that's something that no one can take away from you ever. So it's all about your intention, your effort. And perhaps some will succeed, some will fail. That's okay. But you just got to at least keep showing up. Right? Like keep putting in the, the effort. Treat people a certain way. Treat, treat your team members a certain way. Your friends, your community, investors, whoever it is. Um, and in fact, it gets me thinking about uh, 
this thing that we shared during one of our all hands. And it actually is a quote. I don't have a quote in front of me, but I think it was by Teddy Roosevelt. It was called Man in Arena. We should call it Woman Arena or, you know, um, Person in Arena. But there tends to be a lot of uh, critics out there, uh, whether they're, I don't know, journalists in some cases or uh, competitors or sometimes even investors that most of them are try to be supportive. Some of them are, are less patient than others, but there's a lot of people that talk, you know, who, 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 who uh, critique and criticize, but ultimately the credit really belongs to the person who's actually in the arena, right? And I think Teddy described it as uh, you know, whose face is marred by sweat or something, like by sweat and blood and who strives and who makes mistakes, who, who comes short, but you know, ultimately uh, at least has control over the effort. And um, if that person fails, then, you know, at least he or she has tried and, and, and that person's place will never be with the folks that never knew victory or defeat, <laughs> right? So I, that really speaks to me. It gets me thinking about how hard it is to build startups and it's supposed to be really hard to build startups. And uh, something that we try to remind our team from time to time that things are not linear and sometimes it can take a long time to achieve product market fit. I think it's important to persevere, to, to not judge too quickly to not be too negative. And if you're negative, try to hold it to yourself, especially if you're a leader, because it'll, it'll very much impact other people on your team. Uh, so don't try to amplify it amongst the teams, right? We should definitely invent, I don't know, like find, find a, a coach or, or therapy, like that can all help or, you know, with friends, but try not to amplify negative energy too much with your, the rest of your team. And um, uh, yeah, so anywho, I think I, I realized that over the years, uh, I try to manifest that in terms of my actions and how I treat people. Uh, and at the end of the day, you just got to keep doing that and keep, sh- keep showing up. I think that's a really great sentiment. And I think it really reflects how I've known you to always execute your way towards these unknown opportunities and really grasp them. So Adam, I had a lot of fun today. I learned just a little bit more about you. Just my last question here is what's next for you in meta theory and how can our listeners get in touch with that? Yeah, thanks so much, Sandy. I mean, it's been so much fun just, just chatting with you and, and blabbing away at you for a while today. Uh, what's next for me? Very simple. I mean, it, it's meta theory. Uh, that's the heart of what I do these days and finding ways to build out the various products and teams at meta theory. And in terms of how the audience members can help, we're very much looking to keep building up a team. There's certain roles that we're hiring for. You, know, we, you can find it on a metatheory.gg website. Uh, and also, um, we have existing community that are in, a, in our Discord, but if there's any new members, you know, check it out, dustburgers.gg in Discord as well. Check out our Twitter uh, and also give us feedback, give, you know, share your ideas. We're always looking, f- looking for ways to improve. And, you know, I think our crew is pretty open-minded and don't really take ourselves too seriously. So that's probably the best way to help. And we'll keep building, you know, spelled with a B-U-I-D-L, obviously. And, uh, and uh, yeah, love to, love to keep, uh, keep in touch with everyone. Well, thanks, Adam. Thanks for diving deep with us on the Harbinger podcast today. It's been an incredible conversation. So we'll be back soon with another inspiring guest. Until then, take care. Yep. Sounds good, Sandy. Take care. See everyone.